Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Unlocking your sleep potential brought to you by cleanmybed.com. So welcome to another episode of our special series on sleep science and sleep health. And today we tackle a subject which doesn't get a lot of airtime, and that is the subject of menopause and its effect on sleep. And as usual, I have my co-host, uh, Dr. Jill Warner, here in the studio with us. And we have a special guest, and that is on the way all the way from uh, the UK via Zoom, Dr. Zoe Shadal, who has 15 years' experience as an NHS GP with expertise in menopause care, sleep problems, sexual health and contraception. She's an accredited British Menopause Society menopause specialist and is a member of the BMS Medical Advisory Council. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first of all, let's just uh, have a look at exactly what menopause is. When does it happen? How long does it go on for? From the bit of reading I've done, obviously, it's very different experience for lots of different women. And um, those experiences vary very much from not only the time it starts to the experiences and the symptoms that they have during menopause and how long it lasts. Absolutely. So really menopause marks the end of reproductive life. So it's where the female reproductive hormones stop being produced. And clinically, we actually define it just as a day in time. So the menopause is one day, which is one year after your last menstrual period. But when we're talking about the menopause, we're really often talking about a whole phase of life. And we actually think of it as much more as a transition. And because actually the hormones don't stop being produced just overnight, it's not one day, there's quite a long lead up to that. And what happens is this, this phase we call the perimenopause, which starts many years before that last period. So it can be five years, it can be 10 years. And since puberty, the female reproductive system has been managing regular menstrual cycles with predictable ups and downs of estrogen and progesterone. And what starts to happen when, on average, people hit their 40s is actually the ovaries don't have such a good supply of eggs. The hormone production isn't as good and as predictable, and it can become very chaotic. And you get these sort of surges, highs of estrogen and lows and also some cycles that you won't ovulate, you have these anovulatory cycles, so no progesterone is produced. And what it kind of causes is, is a whole sort of mess of hormones, very unpredictable. And the key thing with that is it can cause symptoms. So there are estrogen receptors all over a woman's body from, you know, from the brain, the heart, the skin, the reproductive organs everywhere. And so when the hormones start to misbehave a bit, we start to see symptoms and there can be lots and lots of different symptoms. So that's the perimenopause. You then stop the periods and you enter something called the postmenopause, which is when there's no hormones being produced by the ovaries at all. Um, and so we see this whole thing as a transition. And in terms of how long symptoms last, you're so right. It is very, very individual. The average woman will have symptoms for about 10 years, but at least one in five women, the symptoms will go on for 15 years or more. 
So it can be very lengthy. Some people will just be a couple of years. You know, it really differs and it's quite unpredictable. And Jay, can we just say, when we talk about symptoms, what are the, the most common, the most frequent ones that people, ex- that women experience? So we always, when we think menopause, we always think of the kind of temperature symptoms. So hot flashes and night sweats, these are very commonly associated. So 75% of women will experience these. And they're actually, it's the body's, basically the thermostat has basically been a bit broken with the hormone changes. So the effect of losing estrogen on the hypothalamus means that out of nowhere, the blood vessels will just suddenly dilate, try and release lots of heat from the skin. Someone can can turn quite red and also have quite a lot of sweating for no good reason at all. And this can happen frequently during the day, but also very importantly at nighttime. And you can have these a similar process leading to these kind of prolonged sweats at night as well that we call night sweat. So these are the really classic symptoms of menopause, but actually it's often other symptoms that impact women even more. So, you know, because there are receptors everywhere, you can get symptoms like headaches, like heart palpitations, skin changes, changes to the menstrual cycle. Um, And the brain is very affected by the varying levels of hormone. So the brain tends to like regular cycles or flat. And when you get these kind of chaotic hormones in the perimenopause, very commonly we'll see mood changes. So we have double the rates of depression in the menopause. We have an increased risk of developing anxiety symptoms and also cognitive changes. So changes with the way people think and remember things. And I think these are very important, particularly in the workplace. Women can really struggle with this this sort of condition they call brain fog. Um, And this is the number one thing often women will say, this really makes work very, very difficult. And we know that about one in 10 women will actually leave work because of the symptoms of menopause. So a lot of the symptoms that you are describing there, have, uh, I'm sure a lot of women out there have experienced some of them. So Jill Warner took the opportunity to talk to somebody who has gone through it. And here's her case study with uh, Sadie. Sadie, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Um, Perimenopause and menopause are such important topics at the moment. Um, People are so aware that we really are talking about an illness for a lot of people and and just how debilitating it can actually be for women. Could you just describe to us some of the symptoms that you've experienced during perimenopause and menopause? Uh, Yes, sure, Jill. Um, So I think probably... Uh, initially, I suppose looking back, I'd say maybe my early 40s, I started to um, have a few little indicators now of what would have been the perimenopause, although I wasn't necessarily aware at the time. Uh, so they were uh, you know, quite uh, insignificant things, really. Um, but uh, things like I noticed a bit of hair loss, um, sometimes sort of sore breasts, um, but uh, nothing that was uh, sort of impacting really on on life. But um, in my late 40s, certainly there was a bit of a shift. And uh, one of the things that I really um, became um, something that was a bit more challenging was when uh, my sleep seemed to be affected. So um, I had a busy job. I'd, I'd, you know, uh, go to bed and literally hit the pillow and fall asleep. Um, But I would find that I would wake early uh, and from 
perhaps normally waking at something like 6am to get up pretty early uh, to head off to work. I, I was commuting. Um, that kind of started to nudge earlier in the morning. Uh, the wake up, though, maybe five o'clock. Um, and then... Did that make you feel anxious as well, would you say, Sadie? If that was happening to you, it was making you feel uncomfortable in other situations? It didn't really at that time. Um, I sort of, I had a lot of energy. I was always a person who had quite a lot of energy. I, I didn't sort of sit down watching much TV. I was quite active. Um, so I kind of powered on and I'd try and use that time to, I'd try and fill that time. And what I I did, I'd perhaps, you know, catch up on work or or do things I could do quietly in the house that wouldn't disturb um, anyone else in the household. Um, but I tried to use the time positively, but I just sort of probably you know, ended up working longer hours um, and not really realising the impact that it was having. So it took some time, I'd say, before uh, that lack of sleep, although I was aware it wasn't good, um, that that really started to have a bit more of a um, physical effect and, mm. you know, how I was coping really day to day. I was becoming a little bit more, um, you know, grumpy or grouchy at times. Um, so perhaps it was others around me who were experiencing, you know, that as well. But um, yeah, I, I coped with it for quite, for quite a long time actually and was just sort of managing. Um, but yes, it did lead to um, certainly later on um, that sort of an impact that uh, had sort of anxiety weaved in, which was a, a new sort of experience for me. And sure. uh, yeah, something else to so go In fact, thinking about it, the, the sleep deprivation, um, actually being sleep deprived causes quite a lot of the same symptoms as the menopause. So the two are very strongly linked um, in in terms of, of the symptoms that you experience. But for you then, um, the, the lack of sleep was one of the most troublesome symptoms. It was, yes. And I think it had, uh, there was, uh, it, I would say there was probably like a cumulative effect. And uh, perhaps if I could have solved that at an earlier point and perhaps, you know, understood a little bit more about the impact of perhaps reducing estrogen um, and that that was a very natural process and that there's something perhaps to be expected um, and learn a bit more how to manage that, I think I would... I could have improved the sleep, which would perhaps have prevented some other things. Yes. And you, you mentioned just now as well that you were being trying to be very quiet in the house when you were up early. And did did it concern you that your symptoms and being a little bit grumpy might be affecting other members of the family as well? Yes, definitely. And, um, you know, you're not at your you're not your best self and you're aware that you're not your best version of yourself. Um, and, and it's difficult because I think almost the more you worry about it, the more it can impact on your sleep. So, um, I was always lucky that I could get, get to sleep very easily, but it would be the early waking that was difficult. Um, I was fortunate that my husband's a really heavy sleeper, so I wasn't actually disturbing his sleep. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, um, yeah, the, the impact obviously on friends, uh, family, um, you know, colleagues, um, when when you're not feeling at your best. Um, yeah, it, it... And, and that and that worries you. So if, if once you'd realised this was this was what was was happening, which treatments would you say were most helpful for you, Sadie? 
So I kind of, I, I think during the, the perimenopause, I wasn't really aware of what was going on. So it's really when the men was actually menopausal that I really had the sort of health impact. And that just happened to coincide with COVID. So there were some, it was probably a longer drawn out experience of actually being um, sort of starting on hormone replacement therapy. Um, but I did that probably after about 18 months and did quickly see an improvement in my sleep. And yeah, and that that helped everything. Uh, experiencing, uh, when the menopause hit, I actually experienced uh, quite a lot of cognitive um, issues. So uh, that was, um, I think obviously the lack of sleep was really impacting on on those as well. So could you just expand on those a little bit? What sort of cognitive issues were you experiencing? So I noticed sort of changes in my memory. Um, I would I started to forget things. I became very reliant on uh, post-it notes, on alarms on my phone. Um, I ha really had to plan my days very carefully. Um, you know, even you know something like an important appointment, I could just completely go out of my head. Um, so it kind of had an impact on my executive function, um, my planning time management, all those things were really affected. And it was quite bewildering, actually, because I was aware there was something significant going on, but I, it wasn't um, something that I could just change by attitude. You know, it wasn't, it was something that just, I, you know, things weren't working and my, my brain was working in a different way. And uh, yeah, it was just baffling, bewildering, very hard to explain to anyone. Um, so sure. I didn't, and talk to, you know, doctors, whatever, different people about it. But um, it just felt quite bewildering to talk about. But and I now... when Once you started on the HRT, how quickly were you able to return to a more normal um, type of, of, of what you would expect of yourself? Um, very quickly, the sleep improved. Um, I think, you know, the the probably the lack lack of estrogen once that was being replaced certainly that seemed to have an impact a positive impact on sleep so I was sleeping for longer sleeping better better quality of sleep and yeah gradually things started to to improve um it took some time for the uh, dosage to be sort of tweaked so it suited me and I think it's a very sort of individual um individual uh, process um you know, pe people can respond differently and not everyone can take HRT, of course. So there, but that was really helpful for me. That was a turning point. It was, yes, absolutely. And then I know that you've also tried some other help, um, uh, ways of helping with with the uh, the various symptoms. Could you describe some of those as well, Sadie? Yes, sure, Jill. So uh, as I explained, there was quite a long sort of gap between um, uh with treatment just because of COVID and so on. So um, I'd had breathlessness, um, the cognitive issues. Um, I was diagnosed, uh, sort of diagnosed with asthma, with a sort of background, allergic background. So um, I started to look into things that would help um, dial down, should we say, a response to um, any allergic response. So there were all sorts of things. I tried most things, um, but certainly things like exercise, um, yoga, meditation, so perhaps shifting from more um, high intensity um, 
cardiovascular type of exercise, perhaps dialing it down to to gentler form of exercise. Uh, you know, as I say things like Pilates, yoga were really good. Um, talking about it, actually, um, sort of listening, uh, learning from other women about their experiences through the menopause and things. Um, the Davina McCall programs that were shown um, here in the UK were really helpful. Um, there were two of those. Um, my husband actually watched them first and he suggested, you know, they might be helpful. And uh, and that was really helpful to have, a, have an understanding of yeah. what was going on with my cognitive function. So once I think I had an understanding of what was going on, I could then um, use tools like nutrition, exercise, um, managing myself, um, sort of more and are you now in a in a, a a situation where everything's totally under control and you're fine and you're back to being you exactly i feel like me again yes it was like from going from someone sort of switching off my brain or part of my brain it was uh the the difference in the hormones just it was like someone had switched my brain back on again or that part and i could remember things i could plan things i could sort of have fun again so yeah mm. So that's such a, a positive message for everybody who who is is listening to this today. That if you if you follow these programs, if you do everything that um, we've just talked about, you can go back to being you again. Definitely, without a doubt. There's, there's... <laughs> Sadie, thank you very much indeed. It's great to talk to you, and lovely to hear that you yourself are now feeling very well. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Well, thank you, Sadie, for sharing your experience and uh, lots to take in there. Of course, uh, lots of mentions of the steep aspect of uh, menopause, amongst other things, and certainly sounds like she uh, did struggle uh, through that phase. But uh, lots to take out, very positive message in the end, but uh, sleep being one of the main uh, reasons why she was feeling pretty rotten for, for a couple of years. Absolutely. It's really huge. So we know that more than 50% of women will experience sleep disruption. And the research says sort of 40 to 60%, but actually surveys, recent surveys suggest more than 80% of women will have disrupted sleep during this phase. And sometimes it can be the first symptom. So, you know, you can be going along in your 40s, having had perfectly healthy, normal sleep, and suddenly you can't sleep. Um, what we see with sleep is lots of different things can happen. But the most common thing is broken sleep. So you might fall asleep okay at the beginning of the night, but actually you wake up frequently during the night. And that can be, it can be hot flushes, night sweats causing that. But sometimes it's just out of the blue and you don't know why. And it, you know, it can be very difficult for people to know what's going on, particularly if they're not having other symptoms of the perimenopause or menopause at that time. Yeah. And that's exactly what Sadie has described, like it's, it's, she, she said it's, it, it's so disturbing. You're awake early in the morning, having gone to sleep okay when you first went to bed. But then what do you do with yourself at five o'clock in the morning? Um, and it, it seemed to affect other issues for her as well. She ended up with um, breathlessness. Uh, is that something else that's frequently a symptom? Well, it's not a frequent symptom, but what we know is that there are well, almost any any system of the body can be affected by menopause. So breathlessness is something we can see partly because there are estrogen receptors in the lungs as well, but also sometimes related to anxiety. So, you know, it, there can be lots going into that sense of breathlessness. And actually, it's interesting. We think about these sleep problems 
over the menopause, but there is an increase in one of the respiratory sleep problems as well, obstructive sleep apnea. And we think the reason for that, so it doubles at the time of the menopause in women. Um, we think the reason is that part of the, the respiratory tone that we have, what helps us regulate our breathing overnight is driven by the hormones. And when they drop, we're not so good at holding this kind of tone and keeping the airways open. There's lots of ways the respiratory system can be affected by low estrogen. But also, you know, it can be night sweats, hot flushes causing it. Um, but actually, sometimes women don't have any of those or they don't actually have any anxiety or depression. It's just the hormone changes themselves that affect sleep. And we know if we monitor hormone levels over time, as estrogen falls and as follicle stimulating hormone goes up, which happens around the time of the menopause, we'll start to see less deep sleep shorter duration of sleep and just overall worse sleep quality. So even in the absence of any of those symptoms, sleep just seems to get worse. And we've talked quite a lot during this uh, series about sleep quality and that it isn't necessarily length of sleep, but quality of sleep that is so important for our general well-being. Um, when people come to you, Zoe, and they say this is what's happening, what do you advise them in terms of, of how to improve their sleep during this period? Yeah, you're so right. So that fragmented sleep is often the most hard to cope with. And I think it's that kind of frequent waking that can also really have an impact on the next day functioning. So what we see is so unfair for people experiencing the menopause. Not only are they dealing with, you know, feeling a bit crappy in the daytime anyway, you know, a bit depressed, a bit anxious, then poor sleep just makes all of that worse and also makes the cognitive function worse as well. So I think for me, sleep is the absolute key symptom to get on top of in menopause because I think then it can help, has a knock-on effect helping other things. Um, and I think the first thing to do is try and work out what is it? So is there something obvious? So for, it will differ for people. It's a really individual experience. And is it obviously the hot flushes and night sweats? Is it obviously the anxiety that's creating that kind of sympathetic nervous system activation? And try and pinpoint it. We might not, we might not figure it out. It might just be the hormones causing havoc. Um, and then think about how to treat those symptoms. So the most, um, the most effective treatment is something like hormone replacement therapy or menopause hormone therapy. And this is where you replace the estrogen. So you give someone estrogen and if they have a uterus, you might also, you need to give a progestogen to protect the lining of the womb. So it's often the use of two hormones. And this is the most effective way of treating lots of the symptoms like hot flushes. It can help with the mood and the anxiety as well. Um, but it also can help improve sleep. And so it can, we know it can improve sleep architecture. We see a bit more deep sleep when you use HRT and it can help to reduce those wakings as well. So for some people, this will be a really good first option and it will make them feel better in lots of ways. Some people can't take HRT or they might choose not to. And this is particularly for women that have had a history of breast cancer. So this is a group that HRT is usually contraindicated. So for those people, we would always want to see, is there something else we can do about the symptoms? Actually, there's lots of treatment options. There's lots of non-hormonal medications that we can use. Some of them are antidepressants that are also quite good for sleep as well. Um, and then we also need to think about some of the non-pharmacological treatments. So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Now, I don't know if you've spoken about this before on other podcasts, 
that this is a really, really effective program where you're really targeting some of the thoughts and the behaviours around sleep. And you might think, well, if someone's hormones have gone wrong, how can, how can this help? But actually, we know it can be really effective for women during the menopause transition. And it's partly because although the hormone problems have started the sleep problem and they've triggered it, actually, it can become an entrenched habit, partly due to the anxiety about sleeping and also some of the, the changes people make to their behaviours. And so whether or not you have HRT, CBTI can be also really, really helpful. And particularly if you're not going to access HRT, that might be a really good option. And also make sure... Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, um, can can we have talked about uh, CBT on, on a, a previous podcast? But again, could you could you just expand a little bit more on, on the sort of questions that you're asking people so that they do consider what's happening to them and what they can do to, to control those um, anxieties and, and problems? Yeah. So the idea really is it's all about how insomnia develops. So we know that insomnia is this chronic ongoing sleep problem. So it's where you struggle with sleep at the beginning of the night or wake up a lot or wake up too early. And if that's been going on a long time, often it means that there's this kind of mismatch between um, what the body, you want the body to do and what it does when you get into bed at night. And so often there has been a sense of anxiety around sleep. So lots and lots of people that I see in clinic are really focused on their sleep. They're actually, even in the daytime, they start worrying about whether they will be able to go to sleep at nighttime. And as they lead up to bed, as they get more and more tired, they're absolutely exhausted. That sense of anxiety builds. And the moment they hit bed is where their mind starts racing. And, you know, they feel absolutely exhausted, but they feel tired, but wired in bed. And some CBT is a program. So you will have heard of CBT for things like anxiety and depression, but it's actually very specific and very practical when it's applied for insomnia. It's a slightly different version. So one of the focuses is on those cognitions, those thoughts, those those anxieties. And how can we actually challenge those thoughts and actually give almost replace them with something that doesn't create that same kind of activation in the nervous system? But I think the key and one of the most effective things is the behavioural technique. And what's often happened, and we see this a lot for women in menopause, is that although we don't get much sleep in bed, there's an awful long time spent in bed. So I see women, they're absolutely exhausted. This is incredibly busy time of life with so much going on. And they can't sleep and they're having terrible sleep. So they go to bed earlier and earlier. And in fact, you know, have people go, getting into bed at nine, getting up, at about 6.30, they're in bed for sort of nine, 10 hours a night. But when you ask them how much they're asleep, they're asleep for five or six hours a night. And so a lot of that time in bed is spent awake, often feeling quite anxious. And what this creates is this really unhealthy connection with bed and being awake. And we call this conditioned arousal. So you're almost training yourself to be awake overnight. And so some of the techniques in CBTI are to try and reduce that. So you have something called sleep or bedtime restriction where you get someone to go to bed a bit later and wake up a bit earlier and actually try and sort of squidge together the time and actually force them to have that sleep in that time so they're not lying there for a really long time creating this unhealthy habit. Um, so there are other techniques like that and I think they're very powerful and that will often be advice I give to someone is we really need to think about your early bedtime. I'm not sure it's actually helping you to, to get into bed so early and give yourself this huge sleep opportunity. 
And one of the things we've heard from quite a, a few of the people on the previous podcast is that a regular routine is incredibly important as far as, as your sleep patterns concerned. Absolutely. And I think the key thing to kind of anchor that is the waking up time. So if you can do one thing, it's trying to get your waking up time as consistent as possible. And then the bedtime regularity is important, but also when you choose to get into bed matters a lot. There really is so many people I see get into bed and then lie there for an hour waiting for sleep to come. And it's like, you know, getting to the table when you're not hungry and just sitting there waiting to get some appetite. And we really don't want, you know, regularity is important, but don't, don't do it too early if you're not sleepy. You know, actually wait until you have that really good sleep drive that builds up throughout the day. Um, and that that gives the best chance. And the other treatment I've heard that potentially can be helpful is melatonin. Absolutely. So melatonin is a hormone that we produce ourselves from the pineal gland. And as we age, actually, the pineal gland can get a bit calcified and sometimes the reduction is less. So melatonin is controversial. And actually, there's not great data to say that it really helps that much with things like insomnia. It more helps with timing issues, so circadian rhythm disorder, things like that. But actually, when we're looking at an older population, melatonin is something to consider. Certainly in the UK, you can actually prescribe it. It's licensed for uh, people over the age of 55, only for short, short-term use. But if it's effective, then it, you know, it can be very helpful, even in, in slightly longer-term use. Um, However, in my experience, that often isn't the underlying problem for women in menopause. So I tend to focus much more on the menopause symptoms first. Let's really try and get those under control. But melatonin can be a useful option. There are Mm. other prescribed options. There are things like sedating antihistamines um, and and antidepressants. And again, all of them got problems with them. There isn't a kind of perfect medication that will always work. But I think when people are struggling, you've got to keep an open mind and you've got to look at all the options out there and try and work with someone to find something that really, really helps. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the pharmaceutical options and the CBT. Are there other lifestyle changes that can be helpful, Zoe? Yeah, um, I suppose just good sleep hygiene or sleep habits. I'm sure you've spoken about. So things like making sure your room is very dark, you know, very quiet, have earplugs if if they help you, that sort of thing. I think things very specific to menopause is also thinking about the temperature. So we know when we want to sleep, we have to drop our own core body temperature a little bit to get to sleep. And that should ideally remain lovely and and low and stable throughout the night. So obviously that's where the hot flashes and night sweats are very problematic. But actually just really being conscious of that temperature issue, making sure your room is nice and cool, perhaps Um, having a hot bath or shower before you go to bed to allow that release of heat from your skin and drop the core body temperature a bit can help. Some people who are experiencing hot flashes and night sweats have shown me, actually they've taught me in clinic a clever hack, which is you can buy these cooling pads for bed. And I've had a number of patients who really swear by these sort of um, chilly pads that they put in their bed and help them to cool temperature. And apparently it's much cheaper if you buy them from the pet the pet aisle rather than the menopause product aisle. So you can buy a cooling pad for your dog and actually use it in your bed. Um, But things like that can be helpful. Um, I think also the things you take in in the day. So we always talk about caffeine, but caffeine can also make menopause symptoms worse. So 
I've had plenty of women with palpitations and headaches that they really improve if we can reduce that caffeine use and, and keep that to the early hours. And, and unfortunately, metabolism changes in menopause and alcohol can become much easier, much more hard to tolerate as well. So, so avoiding those things as well. Um, exercise. So this is a phase of life that we see people's activity drop. So it's partly, I think, just life stresses, pressures, getting a bit older. Um, and I think it's also partly the symptoms of the menopause just make everything a bit harder for people. But we know that if we can get really good regular exercise or activity, that can really help with sleep health as well. And then I would always say regularity. So exactly as you said earlier, Jill, the timings, make sure you're having regular waking up times and often not too early a bedtime. And just listening to all of these these ways that people can manage their, their symptoms, it, it's striking me having listened to, to people talking for, for the last year in the series of podcasts about how much the menopause symptoms are the same as sleep deprivation um, symptoms. And therefore the two are inextricably linked, aren't they? So totally. focusing on your sleep has to be the first thing that you think about. You're talking my language. This is exactly why the sleep is just so important. So I've been working as a, a menopause specialist for quite a long time, but I've had a really long-standing interest in sleep. And, and weirdly, I hadn't really put them together until a few years ago. And I thought, well, this is clearly the most important thing for women in the menopause to really focus on, because if you get that right, it really can help with so many things. So it's something I think is very important. And and we're lacking a lot of research. We really need more research to fully understand these links and the ways we can use hormones and other things to, to help people. But I think I hopefully it's coming. You know, what's fascinating about this discussion is that uh, it doesn't seem like it's something that's been very much highlighted when it comes to this stage of life. And uh, I guess what's interesting is that is that because hasn't been a lot of research and other researchers coming out or is that because it just hasn't uh, been publicized and given enough airtime? I think I think you're right. I think for a long time, so about 20 years ago when I was at medical school, I was told that really the only symptoms of menopause were being, being hot and sweaty. Um, and actually we know a hell of a lot more now. We really have learned a lot more. Um, but, but I mean, to be fair, even 15 years ago, there was this idea of core symptoms of the menopause and sleep was one of those four core symptoms. So we've known it's been important. But I think like lots of things to do with sleep, it's been a bit dismissed and it hasn't had the spotlight on it. And it's been a bit ignored. And I think that's been really cultural. You know, actually, we haven't always put that importance and really understood sleep as being as important as it is. It was something that we could give up. And actually... Busy women across the world give up their sleep for all the other things they've got to do all the time. You know, it's something people just think they can do without. But I think we can do we can do everything, can't exactly. we? So that's the thing. Yes. We expect to just you know manage everything. <laughs> yeah, everything. And you know, who, who cares if you don't, you know, don't fall into bed till three hours, you know, later when everything needs to be done. But I think I think also the increase in research about sleep and the impact on health that we've seen over the last five years has really helped put a focus on it in the menopause as well. And actually, I suppose there's the, the negative sign of that is people will often worry much more about losing sleep now. So people will come to clinic and they'll say, not only is it awful because I'm not 
feeling good in the day, but I'm really worried what it's going to do to me. You know, I'm worried that this is going to um, lead to dementia or lead to heart disease and things like that. And and often during the menopause, because your brain isn't functioning so well, that that is a worry that people have. So I think obviously we really need to reassure people about that. And we don't want to create lots of anxiety about that, but also to really know how important sleep is and to put that focus on it. But I've been surprised myself in my menopause training um, over years. I couldn't find anything really helpful on sleep. And that's why I so I published an article a few years ago on this. And I, I really couldn't find that much to guide what we should do. And often in menopause clinics, people would help all the other symptoms. And when someone still couldn't sleep at the end, it would be Oh, sorry about that. Don't quite know what to do. We'll send you back to your GP and, you know, see, see how you go. Good luck. Um, and I, I think it was almost an area they, they don't have confidence in. You know, actually, there isn't very good sleep training in certainly in the UK in medicine. We get very little sleep specialty training. So I think people just haven't really known how to approach it or what to do about it. So a final question that we've been asking this of all our specialists that have been on this series. Uh, what's your bedtime routine look like? Okay, I am actually a, quite a good sleeper. Um, annoyingly to everyone, I'm a good sleeper. I find it very easy to sleep. I think it's very important. So I do I do make time for it. I don't always follow all of the advice correctly. So I tend to work quite late in the evening. I make sure I take a bit of time off to have dinner with my kids. And when I've got my youngest down to sleep, I, I hit the computer and do lots of work in the evening. So I'm often finishing work and jumping straight into bed. Um, but what I do tend to do is I do tend to close off my day really well. So I'll finish the day knowing that I've done all the tasks I need or I'll make a little list for the next day. And so I have a little kind of my own little post-work routine. And that really helps my brain switch off. I don't get into bed. I don't think about work when I'm in bed um, and I fall asleep quite quickly. And actually, I suppose I don't drink any caffeine at all. So I cut out caffeine some time ago after just my own research um, and that probably helps me a little bit as well. I actually, the biggest thing is when I know my sleep is on the edge of, of doing something a bit unhealthy, it's when I'm, when I wake up in the morning and I check my phone and I look straight at emails, that then has a knock on effect to make me wake feeling anxious. So I never, or when I'm being good, I never look at my phone first thing in the morning. I don't check my emails. I'll always make sure I've got up, I've gone and had a drink and done other things before I will have a look. And actually that, the morning, is more important to my sleep than anything else, actually. Ah, that's a good tip. Thank you very much, Dr. Zoe Shadell. Thank you for your time today. And thank you to my co-host, Dr. Jill Warner, who's been such a brilliant to ask of good questions throughout the series. And uh, for now, it's goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 